you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to be starting in verse 11 and going to 25, but our passage that we're focusing on today will be 19 through 25. Again, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 11. This is the word of our God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be all should excuse me should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there, no, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, excuse me, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is perfect. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and yet it comforts those in need of your tender mercies, even today, Father. It is totally sufficient in its revelation to man and its application to our lives, God. And your word is in no need of any further illumination. Rather, it is the eyes of our hearts that need illumination to rightly hear and understand and live out this text. Father, by your spirit and for the glory of Jesus, we ask that you attend the preaching of the word today. Keep me from the temptation to say more than what, what is actually in this text. And keep me from the temptation to say less than what this text plainly says. Help us all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been said by many a theologian and many a scholar over the years that the book of Hebrews is the best commentary on the Old Testament. Namely, for its commentary on the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. And I would most certainly agree with them. Hebrews is a book of the New Testament that especially helps the Christian to take the lump sum of the Old Testament, look at it from its various angles, and sift through that and, and find that Christ Jesus is the central message. 
It helps shed light on a Christocentric um, Old Testament, as it were, in our New Testament eyes. And it further helps us understand the implications of what Christ has done for us in his initiation of a new covenant, a true and better covenant. We open the service by singing that, right? An everlasting covenant, as Jeremiah 32 says, and a final covenant, in the words of the great Puritan Matthew Henry. Jesus himself is the answer to all the Old Testament laws, rituals, prophecies, types, etc. And he is the means by which men and women, Pharisee and prodigal, Jew and Gentile, are reconciled to a holy God. We see in Hebrews, here's a brief breakdown of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is the agent of God's creation. He is the radiance of God's glory and an exact imprint of his nature. And he reigns supreme at the right hand of God. We also see that Jesus is superior to the angelic beings. Jesus is better than Moses. He is better than the priests of Aaron. And Jesus' mediation and establishment of the new covenant is better than the first covenant, thus making it obsolete. As Hebrews 8, 13 says, Because of the finality of this once-for-all atoning sacrifice that Jesus accomplished, we have confidence before God. Not because of us, but because of Christ. It was finished once for all. And because of Him, we have confidence to approach God. To regularly come into the Holy of Holies without fear of utter destruction. Our passage today gives us some exhortations that are fueled by our holy confidence in this all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. And I'd like to mostly focus on those exhortations, but first and, and more briefly, let us address these confidences which are ours in Jesus. Two of them, a pair of holy confidences. In verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, stop there. Kent Hughes divided up these two confidences with two very powerful words that embodies verses 19 through 21. Access and advocate. Access and advocate. We have both of these in Christ. I love that illustration, those words so much. I'm borrowing them. Hope that's okay with you. First, we have access to God by the blood of Jesus. This is not the only place in Hebrews where he tells us this. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Listen, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ has gone before us by splitting the curtain of the Holy of Holies from top to bottom, showing us that according to Matthew's narrative of the gospel, showing us that it was not split by man, showing us that it was not split by the earthquake that was happening, but it was split by God himself. He opened the Holy of Holies. Now, looking at verse 20 of Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews parallels the curtain torn to the torn flesh 
of Christ. Do you see that? By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. The curtain, his flesh. They're both torn. And the author of Hebrews brings out this parallel by talking about Christ and remembrance of his torn, bruised, pierced skin, pierced body. And he did so so he might save people from their sins and bring them to God. And this is the initiation of a new and living way, a new covenant. A.W. Pink noted that this way, because of its perpetual efficacy, is not a lifeless thing, but has a spiritual and vital power in our access to God. And Jesus did this once for all. Unlike the Aaronic uh, priests, uh, where every year they had to repeat the atonement over and over again on the Day of Atonement uh, for the sins of Israel, uh, as it's described in Exodus and Leviticus, Jesus did it once for all. Listen to what Hebrews 9, 24 through 28 says. This is giving us our context uh, of giving us why the therefore is there. Therefore. (laughs) Verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood of it, not of its own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Long story short, Jesus is the way to the Father. What does John 14.6 say? Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The blood of Jesus is our eternal access to God. He invites us into the Holy of Holies since he has gone before us. And he leads us in our worship. Second, he is our advocate before the throne. Jesus Christ doesn't just access, uh, bring access to God and, and those realities for his people. He also stands before the Lord God, the ruler and judge of all men and women, always making intercession for his people. In the same way that the Aaronic priests wore robes that had jewels representing the lineage, the tribe, the people that they represented, so does Christ bear up his own children and puts them on himself as he sits at the right hand of God. My name is written on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. It's powerful poetry there. He willfully cares for us, hears us, owns us as the great shepherd of the sheep. It's glorious news. One of my favorite quotes uh, on the topic of Jesus' intercessory powers and, pre- and priestly office 
uh, is by the Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. You might recognize that name. When I heard this quote, light bulbs just bing, and I was struck down in tears. I couldn't believe that Christ was pleading for me, a sinner, saved by grace. Listen to this quote. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Friends, we have an advocate in our stead. Jesus is our advocate before the throne. Access and advocate. Now, moving on to these exhortations. There are almost overtones of actually a, a Pauline trinity of exhortations that, he, uh, that is going on here uh, in these verses. As you remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We hear an overtone here. I'm not necessarily saying Paul wrote this. We don't know for sure. But it certainly has an overtone of Pauline literature. Because in verses 22 through 25, we see three exhortations to what? Faith, to hope, and to love. Exhortation number one. An exhortation of faith. Let us draw near. Let us draw near, this is verse 22, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Uh, Does any of that sound familiar to you? It sounds like our responsive reading we just read today from Ezekiel 36. This passage is one of two key prophetic passages that lays out the implications of the new covenant for God's people. The other passage being Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And further, I'd say it's common for most people when discussing the topic of the new covenant to usually jump to Jeremiah's prophecy. And that's understandably so. It's, it's beautiful, and, and it's, set, it's actually right before our passage here in Hebrews that the author of Hebrews utilizes it. And that's all good. Um, it makes sense with the forgiveness of sins. He will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Awesome. So why touch on Ezekiel's new, te- new covenant prophecy here? Well, mainly because I think it gets missed sometimes. It's Uh, especially fitting here when we read verse 22. So if you don't remember the passage, I'm going to go ahead and read it again from Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Listen to this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Verse 25 there uses the language of sprinkling and pure water, which seems uh, that the author of Hebrews is paying homage to that. And not only that, but as it relates to our understanding of the new covenant and what it means to be regenerate, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, we see this in other texts throughout the New Testament as well. One instance, you probably remember, is Jesus talking to the Pharisee named Nicodemus. 
in John chapter 3, where he says this. Jesus, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See the similarity there? Now, without getting too far on a tangent here, I think it is fair to clarify here um, that I do not believe <laughs> that John 3.5 is advocating for a position of baptismal regeneration, meaning that baptism has a saving power or that baptism is the final initiating step of salvation for that to incur upon someone. No, notice that the phrase, born of water and the Spirit, and look back at Ezekiel 36 and Hebrews 10, and you'll see that this reference is talking about the inward spiritual cleansing that occurs when God puts His Holy Spirit on a born-again believer. Sure, um, Hebrews 10, 22, might be alluding to the visual symbolism of baptism. Uh, how can you not think of that? Uh, Tom Schreiner points out, it's natural for believers to think about baptism when it mentions the washing of a body. Um, but we can't, even still, we can't um, look too far into that in my humble opinion, because as I think it would, be us, it would do us good to remember that this passage's focus is on the heart. It talks about the inward spiritual change, the inward spiritual cleansing that God gives to the believer. In contrast to the old covenant, though it is upheld by the spiritual, uh, excuse me, by the sacrificial shedding of blood, the blood of these animals can never cleanse a guilty conscience. It could never perfect the evil conscience. But oh, brothers and sisters, because of Christ, we can draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. We can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, as Hebrews 4.16 says. Why? Because he has cleansed us of a guilty conscience once for all. He gives us his spirit, and he gives us new hearts. Just think about that for a second. He takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. Have you ever noticed that it's pretty hard to be alive if you have a heart of stone? How does that work? Likewise, by the blood of Jesus applied on our evil consciences, God, by His Spirit, makes His people who were once dead, heart of stone, alive in Christ, heart of flesh. He cleanses us and gives us new hearts that are freed from the bondage of our corrupted wills and liberates us to live and walk according to His Word. And our new hearts are palatable and receptive to the things of God. This is good News, church, this is your testimony if you are his today. How about another passage from, one of Paul's, from two of Paul's epistles? 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, just listen. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed in the Spirit. All those verbs are in the past tense, by the way. Washed, sanctified, justified. We do well to remember the past tense there. And also consider Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There is this biblical language of the water and the Spirit. Think upon these two stanzas of the Elijah Hoffman hymn, Down at the Cross. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down wherefore cleansing from sin I cried. There to my, where? Heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Let's get down to verse 3. O precious fountain that saves from sin, I am so glad I have entered in. There Jesus saves me and keeps me clean. Glory to his name. Man, there are some days I hear that and I want to shout, Hallelujah! Yes! I am clean because of Christ. Right? Hopefully. But let's be honest. Our adversary is cunning. It's crafty. More often than not, when we read that verse, verse 22, that we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, or we hear that line from the hymn, there Jesus saves me and keeps me clean, we don't want to believe it. We just can't fit that in our minds. And doubts and discouragements creep in. I'll be honest, sometimes when you read that verse, that's what I feel like. Things like this come up on your head. But Lord, look at all that I've done. This sin in my life, I can't seem to get a hold of it. How can I truly be declared clean when all I feel is dirt? How can I know that this is applied to me? It is in those dark times, friends. We must draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Bill talked about Assurance of the Christian and our call to worship. The true heart and the full assurance is given to us. That is not something we have to spur or try to will in ourselves. It is a gift of the Spirit. And it's ours if we're in Christ. Your confidence to draw near to God is not based on how good you've been today. Your confidence is not in, is not in the goodness of yourself. It is in the goodness of Christ. As we've already said He is your access and your advocate. The payment was made. Your guilt acquitted. The wrath of God satisfied. Appeased forever. Your sin placed on someone else. It's placed Christ. Draw near to Jesus. Though Satan may still accuse you and confuse you and condemn you. Listen to this. 
familiar hymn. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We can boldly draw near when we place our faith in His work. Exhortation 2, hope, clinging to our confession. In drawing near to our God, we imply that there is something worth hoping for in God or anticipating with God. Notice specifically, though, the stress in verse 23. Let us hold fast the, what? The confession of our hope without wavering. So what is our confession? Simply put, uh, actually, if you have an ESV study Bible, it says this in the study notes, and I thought it was very helpful. A confession, uh, it says, the confession of our hope is the church's assent to the teachings concerning Christ and his work. I like that. Our confession, our message, our confidence is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only confidence in this world that saves souls. Can I get an Amen. It is the only confidence in this world that actually deals with our guilt. It is the only um, confession in this world that provides hope. It is the only confession in this world that is worth living out. Christ and Him crucified. That is the confession of our hope, people. We should hold fast to it. Why do we need to hold fast to it, you may be asking. Well, yet again, like verses 19 and 20 described, The confidences we have in Christ's work, we have another confidence here. Listen to this. So we had the two, but now there's another after this conjunction here. For he who promised is faithful. This particular clause here reminds me of the doxology in 1 Thessalonians. Listen to this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's been faithful in the past. He'll remain faithful in the future. The promises of God Almighty can never fail. And they won't return void for the one who places their hope of salvation in Christ. Dear friend, if you are not a believer, I implore you by the mercies of God, turn away from any hope that this world is going to try to give you. Those wells will always run dry, but there is a hope that lasts beyond the grave. Run to Christ. He is the living water, and you'll never thirst again. And find life eternal in Him. Turn from your sins Trust in the righteousness of Jesus to save you, and he will gladly receive you unto himself. The Christian life, however, as we've talked a lot about in 1 Peter, um, in, our se- in our series we just finished, um, we know that the Christian life is not all sunshine and rainbows, right? <laughs> Personal trials will come. Sufferings of all kinds will come. And you will be reviled by the world. That's what 1 Peter says, right? This is why the call to hold fast to this confession of our hope is so 
utterly crucial. Because we know that we will often be tempted to lose hope and to walk away from the hope of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, hold tight to it. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to this confession. Press on in your faith. The reason we chose uh, the song of response today that we're going to be singing is, be- is because specifically of verse 23. Um, and our song of response is one we-, we love here. Christ our hope in life and death. But so, so often when we sing, <laughs> we can go through the motions, right? We don't always let it wash over us and ponder it really deeply in our hearts. So listen to these stanzas. This is something we're going to sing at the end of service. But it applies so much here in verse 23. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Verse 2, what truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? Where? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Oh, sing, hallelujah, Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Let us hold fast fast to that confession, church. Finally, exhortation of love. Consider holy community. Verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Sam Alberry says this about the community of a local church. Listen to this. It is impossible to be in Christ and not belong to others. A Christian, by its definition, has a connection with and a responsibility to other Christians. You cannot claim Christ and avoid his people. First, let me address this broadly. To the individual that might say, well, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Um, I think it's fair at that point that you've lost the gospel. Um, Jesus loved his rebellious, adulterous, unfaithful, unloving bride. And he bled and died to redeem that bride for himself. The loving kindness and humility that Christ displayed as the God-man is beyond all comprehension. Therefore... Since Christ embodied humility and gentleness and common grace for all men, why would we as his followers think that we're exempt from walking in that manner as well? The church of the living God must be a beacon of hope and and love to the world, yes indeed, but more specifically to what the author of Hebrews is getting at here, men and women have been granted grace, that have been granted grace must be willing and the first ones to show and give grace grace, especially to their brothers and sisters in a local congregation. Considering how to stir one another up to love and and good works is the ultimate mark of a Christian who is more interested in others than their own interests. 
I love the C.S. Lewis quote that Doug uses a lot here, and it hurts a little bit every time he says it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but is thinking of yourself less. So we can stir up one another by our words and our example, though these alone are not the full encapsulation of our duties as a Christian, uh, as we can do those words and examples anywhere. But let's read again here in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. The church has always, believe it or not, suffered the problem of people not wanting to assemble. Right? For the author of Hebrews, neglecting to gather was not a light issue. Fear of discrimination and persecution marked the most common reason for absences in the local church. Uh, And this wasn't an occasional absence. These were premeditated, habitual absences I don't want to meet. They were very much premeditated. Today, though in the Western world we may not suffer persecution, um, we certainly suffer from laziness. We suffer from misplaced priorities, from a consumeristic mindset of what the church is supposed to be. Now, let me be clear. (laughs) Members of a church that are not feeling well or homebound due to poor health are not in sin for not attending, okay? Um, Families that are on their occasional vacation for good and noble sakes of rest and time spent with family, I believe, are not in sin. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if you are an able-bodied believer with no unprecedented impeding circumstances, and it's the Lord's day, my friend, you should be here. You should want to gather with the saints. Why wouldn't you want to do anything else? And I'm not trying to make qualifiers on this matter, but since when did it become acceptable for many churches to consider you a faithful member if you're not here half the time? Part of the time. Whatever you want to put on that, I'm not going to go too far into that. We ought to long to meet together with our spiritual family. It should, in many ways, be the height of our week and one of our greatest joys here on earth. When you're not worshiping with the body, those that are present miss out on the fellowship and the encouragement and the edification that you bring to them. Corporate gatherings are much more than you getting your spiritual fix for the week and then you're good. It's so much more than that. We need our brothers and sisters here The Nine Marks book, Corporate Worship by Matt Merker, um, which is what I used in my Sunday school class last fall uh, on congregational singing. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I've been so helped by that book. It's a little blue book, a little advertising here, a little blue book on the um, uh, welcome desk. We have a few extra, and I would highly recommend it. Listen to this quote from Matt Merker on the corporate nature of our gatherings. Listen. We gather to edify and to be edified. The, quote, Lone Ranger Christian is like a detached prosthetic limb. Our corporate worship should undermine self-centeredness. We come to be built up because we desperately need it. Yet also, in God's providence, other members need us to come and build them up too. We are, listen, this is so good. We are simultaneously doctors and patients in God's hospital, binding up others' wounds and receiving 
the medicine that our own souls need. You may be saying this, well, that all sounds good, but how can I avoid the awkwardness of church fellowship? (laughs) In some ways, I understand where you come from. (laughs) Um, Listen to Brett, Brett McCracken, who wrote this book called Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. I also recommend that. In his chapter on uncomfortable people, (laughs) he gives this humorously relevant list of uh, typical church folk that uh, make you want to cringe a little bit sometimes. (laughs) Um, If what I'm about to say doesn't make you cringe or chuckle, well, then you're probably one of them. Um, Here's a sample. This list is extensive, by the way. This is only six of them. I think they're hilarious. The over-aggressive huggers who always bypass the side hug for the full-on hug. Right? That's, that's always fun. The under-aggressive people who never know whether to hug you or to shake your hand. <laughs> um, the, that's good. The, external, the external processor who takes up so much of our precious social energy by meandering thoughts aloud. Ad nauseum. <laughs> the church lady who manages to ask horribly offensive and personal questions under the guise of a kind-hearted concern. The far, <laughs> the far too happy person whose perpetual smile surely must mask something sinister. <laughs> and the person who has shaken hands with you 12 times but still can't remember your name. Guilty as charged on occasion. <laughs> Church can be awkward sometimes. Um, and can I let you on a little secret? Some of y'all are just weird. <laughs> I love you, but... In some ways, you're strange to me, I'm strange to you, it's all good, and that's okay. (laughs) Why? Because it paints such a more beautiful picture of the unity of a church. Some of you I would never cross paths with if it weren't for Sunday morning, right? We come from such different um, backgrounds, uh, occupations, family life, yada, yada, yada. And again, it's evidence of Christ's like service and kindness working in us. We should want to be together. It's our mutual encouragement. When we neglect worshiping together, we abandon God-given encouragement. Look at the verse again. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. See how it's got a conjunction there? But, after it says not neglecting to meet, neglecting and encouragement are polar opposites. You get that? They are diametrically opposed to one another. That's huge. Listen to this quote from David Clarkson, who's a Puritan pastor, as it points to the significance and the beauty of believers gathering together. I thought this was so helpful. Just just bear with me and listen. The Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united and meet in love. So that the presence which enjoyed in private is but a stream. In public becomes a river. A river that makes glad the city of God. I love that imagery. Further, besides our words, our fellowship, and our example... How do we take up this responsibility to love and encourage each other? 
uh, in some ways, the answer to that is almost too simple. Participate in the corporate gathering. Some obvious ways we do that are in the response of reading. We, we both hear the word proclaimed over us and we speak it. We put it on our own mouths so that we're using multiple senses to hear and speak the word of God to help us remember and savor those truths. That's one way to participate. Um, another is um, how we engage in prayer with a final affirmation of amen or yes or any other spontaneous affirmations you want to throw in there um, in a prayer or even in a sermon. But sometimes, uh, something that's less obvious or at least more confusing as to how this is a means of discipleship is the congregational singing. <laughs> oh boy, here he goes. He's the worship pastor. He's got to say something about singing. Just bear with me. No, it's not just about that. So much more. Most of you, when I, <laughs> when I say that your willful, dutiful, compelling participation in singing is to be a blessing to others, you probably chuckle a little bit. Yeah, right. Have you heard me sing? <laughs> Couldn't carry a tune in a bucket? The Lord said to make a joyful noise. It doesn't have to be a pretty one. I've heard them all. Trust me. <laughs> the point is not your intonation. The point is your visible and willing engagement for the sake of edifying and teaching others. Yes, you are teaching your neighbor, the person in the back of the room, front of the room, side of the room, whoever, as you sing. Your singing is also an act of love. Love and good works, right? Stir those affections up. David Peterson affirms this in his book called Engaging with God uh, when he says this, the God-directed ministry of prayer and praise and the notion of edification are intimately linked in the New Testament. Even psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which are an expression of faith and thankfulness to God, are to be considered simultaneously as a means of teaching and admonishing one another. The words we put on our lips in worship to God have a tremendous, if not daunting and dangerous, influence on our lives. I hope you realize that. I hope you realize how much thought your elders put into the corporate gathering and the intentionality of every word we say and sing and do and hear. The songs that we use are meant to meet a wide variety of believers, a wide variety of seasons of life, whether it's a season of life or a temptation or a joy or a suffering that you may be going through. Kind of finish up this thought on stirring up one another to love and good works. Listen again to Matt Merker in his book on the impact of congregational singing, okay? Listen. How often do I wander into church with low spirits and tired eyes? One such Sunday, I looked up as the singing began. Across the room, my friend Jeremy. Though he was singing to God, he was doing so in a way that made it seem like he was also singing at me. And probably at everyone else, too. It wasn't fake or forced. He simply sang in a way that invited others to sing. And these are the words he sang. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Amazingly, mysteriously, the Lord used Jeremy's facial expression to press the truth of that song into my heart. And I started to sing along. 
Wow. The point is, is not to get you to have Jeremy's facial expressions, though admittedly, facial expressions are okay, Boulevard. Expressions in worship are okay. You don't have to fear rejection or intimidation because of them. The Lord is impassioned. The truths of your the the knowledge, the truths you have here to drop to your heart, and expressions of worship are granted to us and are edifying. And we do this all again for the sake of admonishing one another. Jonathan Lehman once said this, (laughs) so good. Far better than the sweet harmonies of a few trained singers is the rough and hale sound of pardoned criminals delighting with one voice to their Savior. The most beautiful instrument in any Christian service is the sound of the congregation singing. Do you believe that? Because of the confidence we have in Christ, and His faithfulness of His promises, we can do these things, church. As we covered in the topic of gathering of faith, of drawing near and worship, sure, it's, that, that passage is about all of those things, sure, but like the majority of Hebrews, this per, the purpose of this passage, especially in verse 23, is about perseverance, holding fast to the gospel. How does this passage end? Where is it going? It ends with the mentioning of the day of the Lord, which then makes a bridge to one of the warning passages of Hebrews. A warning to not shrink away in the faith. What a sobering motivation that is. But encourage one another, this is verse 25, and and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does all the more mean? I interpret that as, by whatever means possible, make sure that your neighbor, your brother or sister, is pressing on in the faith. So yes, encourage. Yes, exhort. Yes, correct with love. Yes, disciple one another with accountability. Our time on earth should not be wasted because the Lord is coming back. As the teacher in Ecclesiastes writes at the end of his book, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Those who keep the end in sight will do well in perseverance. We anticipate this day as a future, future and final revelation of our salvation. And in light of that day, we must confidently draw near. We must confidently hope in His promises and encourage the brethren. I end this sermon with the call, to doxology, or call of the doxology um, at the end of the book of Jude. Jude excuse me. Listen to this. This is a call not only of a doxology, but also perseverance. In Jude, but you, beloved, building up, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save yourself by, say, excuse me, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, sh- to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the throne, his, excuse me, before the presence of His glory with great 
joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, be majesty, be dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Deacons, come forward.